From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. An eerie orange sky hovers over parts of New Mexico because of a massive wildfire. The ancestral homes of some Coloradans that predate both states are at risk. We'll talk about the impact on our collective cultural history. Then, lawmakers zeroed in on how people live and the air they breathe in their legislation to address climate change this year. I would say there was a very big focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and then there was a separate, very large and substantial effort to improve local air quality. We'll check in with our climate team about what legislation made it across the finish line. And later, the moon will turn blood red on Sunday. What's behind the phenomenon and other reasons to look skyward this summer? Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. It's another day of high fire danger across Colorado. Firefighters are getting a handle on four small fires reported in Colorado Springs yesterday. The biggest blaze in the U.S. right now is just to our south in New Mexico. It's on lands that are ancestral homes for some Coloradans. We're going to talk now about how the connections between Colorado and northern New Mexico predate and transcend these state borders. Eric Romero teaches Native American Hispano Studies at New Mexico Highlands University. It's in Las Vegas, New Mexico, where Romero is now. That's just east of the massive Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak Fire. And Eric, welcome to the show. Good morning. Glad to be here. First of all, I hope you are doing okay, given the circumstances. The fire near you is the largest in the country right now, and it's been burning for weeks. How are the skies today? It, 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 they're overcast because of the, 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 the fumes. Uh, I think that's a big issue for many of us, is that even though we may be out of danger from the fire directly, the the toxicity of this smoke is really having an impact on individuals. So it's over here. And of course, a lot of that smoke is heading up Colorado way as well. As I mentioned, you're in New Mexico now, but you're originally from Walsenburg, Colorado. So you've lived on both sides of the border. As a cultural anthropologist, I know you've thought a lot about the connections between these places. They go back to long before there even was a state border. Can you describe the connections Coloradans feel to these places in New Mexico, in particular the ones now affected by wildfires? If, if I could start off with kind of a land acknowledgement of recognizing these these ancestral lands that you speak about, I uh, appreciate the introduction. Again, you know, the, these lands have been populated by indigenous populations for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, they've seen, been witness to a variety of different colonizing practices and, and influx of peoples from the outside, etc., 
And, and part of my work is really looking at identifying, well, where are those stories? Where are those vestiges? How do those histories become evident? And so I think that's very true of looking at Colorado populations that have an anchoring in northern New Mexico. And, 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 and I often do the framing that I introduce myself as from northern, northern, northern New Mexico, which is southern Colorado, because of that shared heritage. And in particular, part of the history of Colorado was a, an out-migration of families from New Mexico that headed north looking for different areas of enterprise and such. So again, as you mentioned, some, some families up in Colorado have deep-rooted articulations with New Mexico communities. And in this sense, we're speaking about the Mora Valley, Las Vegas, some of the very smaller, smaller communities that have been impacted, but at different times in the larger history, uh, there's been out migration from these individuals going to work in Pueblo, going to work in Denver, going to on stopping on the way in Colorado on their way to work the, the sheep herds in Wyoming and such. So there's a lengthy history of New Mexico out migration and reestablishment in some of the Colorado communities. There's this term manito. It describes New Mexicans of Hispanic descent. Can you help us define manito trail? Okay, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because within the nomenclature, you know, the nomenclature and the ter the identity cultural identity terms that people use. They could be either clarifying or confusing. Manito, in a, in a very general sense, without going into an extended presentation on it, are rural northern New Mexico, southern Colorado that have a shared cultural experience and such. And so, as mentioning, many of them had left for a variety of different reasons, part of it being the land loss that occurs with the United States occupation of the area. Again, many of these communities here in New Mexico were land grant and acequia communities. And so by means of the Spanish government and the Mexican government, there were established communities that were land-based and had communal systems of exchange and, and sustainability practices with agriculture and, and food sharing and such. So that that's part of a bigger legacy and many of the families that moved to Colorado were were um, lost their land holdings and had to find enterprise within a market economy. And so again, they went, they worked the steel mill in Pueblo, the depot, found their way into other different land holdings in Colorado, went to the stockyards in Denver, and and with that Manito Trail, again extends northern into Wyoming, Montana. It dissipates out into other states, and and again, it's it's the out-migration of rural Manito, Nuevo Mexicano, Hispanic, Indo-Hispano community members that were not finding venue in, in where their life, their life venues were here. And so they had to leave to look for, for income somewhere else. And so again, with that Manito trail, you know, a, a colleague of mine, Levi Romero, is, came up with that concept because he had done some work in, in Laramie and identifying families up there that are directly articulated with New Mexico families. 
There's also a second fire. It's smaller but still significant um, that's burning. That's one is on the other side of Santa Fe, north of Albuquerque. It's close to a lot of indigenous pueblos. So thinking about both these fires right now, can you describe the significance of the villages and pueblos that are at risk, as well as the ones that have already been devastated by these fires? And, and again, I'll refer to that longer patrimony and heritage history of saying many, some of these communities have been in place hundreds of years and have developed land-based subsistence patterns that really benefit from the natural resources surrounding them. It's rurality in a different sense because there is a, a direct articulation, a direct benefit from the resources that come from the mountain landscapes. And not only the mountains, but from different levels of, of, of what the landscape can offer on the, on, on the way of natural resources. And so, again, this isn't just houses burning or, or properties being impact, impacted. These are ec economies, land-based economies and, and, and meaningful ideas and relationships with the landscape that are being impacted. Unfortunately, stories about homes or whole neighborhoods being devastated by fire have been common in the West. I think of the recent Marshall Fire in Boulder and the fire in Paradise, California. What's different about the areas that are experiencing these fires in New Mexico? Is it different when we're talking about a community that's hundreds of years old? In, 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 in the local Spanish we have a term that we call querencia, and roughly translated, it's a place identity, and and it works in so many different manners. It, it's not just a, a material relationship, but as, as far as, you know, utilizing the natural resources, it's a deep-rooted spiritual wisdom-based articulation with landscapes which refer to a bunch of different levels of different uh, storytelling activities. And in fact, that's kind of where my dissertation research was working with, is I'd worked with, you know, how narratives are indicative of this deep-rooted place identity and, and, and a lot of different, uh, both academic and cultural uh, workers have went that direction of making the, the articulation of story in place uh, we have our households, we have our communities, etc. But what makes them meaningful is when we attach story to them and such. And so with many of these communities, it's not a family story. It's a heritage of stories that go on that, that demonstrate wisdom and knowledge and spiritual articulation with landscape. What principles of these places would you want to see brought to the recovery efforts in northern New Mexico? That is, once the recovery efforts can begin. Well, I, well, I think there's going to be levels of work that need to be done, and there's already some discussions of what it means that uh, uh, with with the federal designation of, of, of FEMA funds to come in and, and the recognition of the devastation how it's impacting not only households and families, but local economy, et cetera. And I think what's going to be key is that the, the money's coming in, that they they recognize the, the historical and cultural nature of what these communities are about. There's a lot of collaboration. There's a lot of sharing. There's a, a commonality in place, a mutual aid sort of 
orientation. And uh, I, I'm, I'm participating in a couple of discussion groups at this point where we want to emphasize that whatever kind of resources coming back are cognizant and, and recognize the, the, the cultural nature of what these communities are about. So it's not just a real quick influx of monies, rebuild a house and, and, and reestablish uh, some different kind of industries and such, but it'd rather be anchored in deep cultural understandings and really the relationship established between these communities. And I think that's kind of the message for Colorado at this point, particularly for those families that know of, of these communities and have direct articulation and communication with some of their, their family members that are down here is one a demonstration of, of support. You know, thoughts and prayers do carry weight. And and as, as we start with the reconstruction and, and the uh, infrastructure development project, we wanna be aware and, and recognize that the, there's a cultural value system that has to be reinvented rather than just a monetary uh, rebuilding coming in. For people listening who feel these connections that you've been talking about, I wonder if you can help them process these feelings. What effect does it have on people to see places where they have deep roots go through this kind of trauma? That, that, that's a really interesting question. And, and to some degree, I would say Colorado families may already have some sensibilities of that. Those that know that they were originally from these mountain areas, again, northern New Mexico, southern Colorado, the Valle, Huerfano, Pogatorio, Cucharas River systems, uh, there's already a sense of land loss. There's a social memory of land loss within many of those family narratives there. You you could find vestiges as, as, or, or or indicators saying that we lost this land. This is this was Mexico. This was Spain. These were indigenous communities, and by means of different levels of, of appropriation, and a land loss had taken place. So I think part of that historical trauma of, of land loss may already be in place, and that some of the families may may have that as part of their articulation with New Mexico is the recognition of saying, yeah, well, they're from down here, but they had to move because there was a land loss, because there was a, an, an appropriation that had taken place. And that's part of the larger Southwestern history of, um, of the land grants. Uh, when the United States government came into place and Mexico lost a third of its territory, there was over 400 land grants that had been established by the Spanish and Mexican governments. Within a 30-year period, 80% of those lands were lost uh, in in legal battles, in in corrupt in corruptions. Uh, again, the land exploitation that had taken place was really severe, and so that's within the social memory of many families. And I would include, particularly, Colorado families that are aware of that larger history. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. At your service. Eric Romero teaches at New Mexico Highlands University in Las Vegas, New Mexico. He teaches Native American Hispano studies. (music) 
Colorado lawmakers tried to bring climate change closer to home during the recent legislative session. They considered how to make buildings ready for a hotter planet and how to clean up Colorado's dirty air. Here to talk us through this are two people from our climate team, reporter Sam Brash and editor Joe Wirtz. And welcome back. Hey, how are you? Glad to be here. Sam, climate change has been a focus for Colorado Democrats ever since they won full control of state government. That was four years ago. With the election coming back up, was this year any different? Yeah, I think you could. <clears throat> excuse me. I think you can think through uh, what Colorado Democrats have been doing is working through the biggest sources of emissions in the state. Uh, in last sessions, they've dealt with transportation and the electricity sector, which are the two biggest sources of greenhouse gas emissions in Colorado. This year's it was really about the built environment, buildings, which are the third biggest source of emissions in the state, and that came down to things like homes, lawns, recycling bins, things we deal with every day. The other big focus was air quality. I'm sure you've noticed the haze over the Front Range uh, the last few summers. And Colorado Democrats launched a plan to improve things. And, you know, one final topic was wildfires. Lawmakers returned to the Capitol after the Marshall Fire destroyed about 1,100 homes in Boulder County. So that was obviously on their minds as well. Let's zero in on air quality since we're heading back into ozone season. What did lawmakers do to clear the air, so to speak? Uh, So Democrats' air quality strategy, at least this year, pretty much came down to money, not mandates. The main bill set aside more than $100 million to bring down the cost of things like e-bikes, electric school buses, electric trucks, lots of clean ways to get around, uh, and additional money to pay for industrial projects to clean up air pollution. Uh, Another $28 million bill has free transit for the summer. It's for free transit this summer, so RTD plans to use that money to make buses and trains free this August around the metro area, and lawmakers hope that'll help get some people off the road, out of their cars. So free transit during the summer. Joe, would that actually work? Well, that's unclear. So CPR Transportation reporter Nate Miner uh, published a story recently about a similar experiment about this. RTD tried this in the late 1970s. You know, you can remember talk of the brown cloud. It was, you know, uh, air quality was really bad around this time. So they tried it. They uh, did it. It was a little bit different policy, but it didn't really do anything to reduce pollution. So it boosted ridership a little bit, but it didn't do what it needed to do, which was get people out of their cars and onto transit, right? So federal government did a report about this and they found that really there was no detectable change in pollution levels you know, nothing that was any different than uh, the changes that you might get from the weather being different that day. So pretty unclear if this is going to do anything at all when it comes to air pollution. Sam, the strategy this session has been money, not mandates. Did rules to regulate air pollution have a tougher time at the state capitol? Absolutely. I think the best example of this was a big air toxins bill. Uh, This has been a longtime priority for environmental justice groups and lawmakers from really heavily polluted urban areas. And what it would have done is set up a state program to regulate harmful air pollution that the federal government doesn't directly regulate itself. These are, you know, not the big 
big pollutants we hear a lot about, like ozone, things like benzene or hydrogen sulfide. And it would have required, you know, big polluters like Suncor and Excel Energy to do a lot more to control those pollutants. But they lobbied really hard against this bill and won some big concessions. Uh, Our original plan would have set up a permitting program for air toxins, which would have given regulators a lot of power to crack down on private companies. Now the state only plans to study the idea of that program. You mentioned a lot of climate bills focus on homes and the way people live here in Colorado. What are some examples of that? A whole bunch of bills on that front, and I'm not going to mention all of them right now. I'd mention two. Uh, One sets aside, one sets like a higher floor uh, for statewide building codes. So over the next few years, cities and counties will have to adopt new standards for more energy efficient buildings. And they'll also have to make sure future buildings are ready for like electric cars and solar panels. And another one shifts the responsibility for recycling. And the idea here is instead of putting the financial burden on taxpayers or cities or communities, it charge companies to fund recycling programs across the state. And Colorado tends to recycle way less than other states. Way less. Uh, Environmental advocates put it around 16 percent. That's half the national average. You know, this bill requiring companies to pay fees based on the type of packaging on their products The idea is that would fund more curbside recycling services across the state. And lawmakers' goal here is no-cost recycling services at all Colorado homes and apartments. So pretty ambitious stuff. One uh, topic your team focuses on is the connection between climate change and the ongoing drought across the western U.S. Did that come up in the session? It did. One bipartisan bill sets up a program to pay people to rip out their lawns and replace it with the uh, water-friendly landscaping. That's proven effective uh, to conserve water in other desert communities like Nevada. We've spoken about bills that passed the legislature. What failed this year? So one that failed was a plan to ban gas-powered lawn equipment that got the axe. Democrats tried to keep incentives for electric lawnmowers and leaf blowers, but that got killed as Republicans filibustered at the end of the session. Uh, They also voted down a bill to hire more fire investigators uh, that would determine what causes fires. That hits a little close to home in this newsroom. I was a small part of a big investigation that our colleagues uh, Veronica Penny and Ben Marcus did on the investigations team. And it found that Colorado has more wildfires with unknown causes than any other state in the U.S. West. Speaking of wildfires, you mentioned the legislature attempted to pass bills to address the disaster. Joe, what passed on that front? Right. So lawmakers did pass a bill that would set up a new disaster recovery office. This office would help kind of oversee um, efforts to, you know, uh, help communities and and people respond. And, uh, you know, after a disaster like a wildfire, they'll hand out grants. That could help you know, people like Marshall Fire victims who lost their homes and businesses. Um, but some lawmakers uh, wanted to authorize a new board, a new authority to make sure homes across the state were hardened against future wildfire disasters. This was actually a plan endorsed by the State Wild, uh, Wildfire Commission. It would have you know, enacted this new sweeping authority that w- would have been able to um, set guidelines for how homes and buildings are constructed, how land is used, and, and uh, they did not take that up. It, it, came in kind of towards the end of the legislative session. Lawmakers said they just didn't really have any time to look at it. But, you know, similar policies that were way less, you know, strident than this effort have been defeated in the past. So, you know, the cities and uh, counties don't like it. Um, And as as Sam said about the wildfire inspectors, uh, yeah, a little bit more on that investigation we did. But, you know, the most fires, most wildfires are human caused. 
overwhelming majority. They never figure out which human caused it and how. Um, And, uh, you know, in Colorado, a lot of these wildfire uh, investigations are done by local agencies that just don't have the staff or resources, you know, full time to be studying these things. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Sam Brash and Joe Wirtz are part of CPR's climate and environment team. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the time before Roe v. Wade, Colorado was the first state in the country to legalize abortion. It was limited to cases of rape and incest. When I first started dealing with reproductive rights issues, it was extremely bipartisan. Obviously, that has changed. So what happened? The story behind our current debates over abortion access in Colorado is on the CPR News podcast, Colorado In-Depth, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Colorado led the nation in bank robberies last year. It comes at a time when the state's dealing with a steep rise in violent crime. That's along with the fentanyl addiction crisis. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry found that the bank robberies are usually done out of desperation. I'm standing outside of a Chase Bank branch off of East Colfax Avenue a few miles east of downtown Denver. It's in a strip mall next to grocery stores and restaurants, and it has a parking lot right outside. In fact, there's a parking place right in front of the door. On this busy weekday lunch hour, the bank's bustling with customers who figured out that it's an easy in and out stop. But someone else has also figured that out. Bank robbers. This branch was robbed four times last year, including twice in two days last fall. And Chase is just one of the banks that have been targeted in Colorado. Denver police are looking for this man after they say he robbed a Wells Fargo bank. It happened Wednesday afternoon at the bank located on West 38. In a regular year, Colorado has about 115 to 120 bank robberies. In 2020, during the height of the COVID-19 lockdowns, that fell to 90. But last year, Colorado had almost 200 robberies making the FBI field office here number one in the country for this crime. Typically, um, bank robberies are committed by individuals as an act of desperation. That's Denver FBI's special agent in charge, Michael Schneider. Law enforcement in Colorado place at least some of the blame for the ranking on fentanyl. He says three out of four suspects recently arrested for a string of robberies told federal investigators they were supporting a fentanyl addiction, a problem that has exploded in the state in recent years. It could be a financial act of desperation where they need the money for some personal reason, but more often than not, it's to feed a drug addiction. Here's the thing about reporting on this kind of robbery. Banks just don't want to talk about it. For this story, I got no comments from tons of banks. The Colorado Bankers Association wouldn't help me find anyone to talk, even generally, about how banks protect themselves and their employees. It's nothing about you. It's uh, They just don't like to, to talk about that. And they don't even want to talk about what they do and don't do in terms of the means to prevent a robbery. Don Coker worked in banking for almost two decades and now is a banking security expert and consultant and often testifies in bank robbery trials as an expert witness. He says banks worry more about the liability of someone getting hurt than they do losing cash which is usually insured. The, the robbery's not going to hit their bottom line, really. Yes, you know, robberies are a few thousand bucks. According to court filings, the robberies in Colorado yield vast ranges of cash, and usually no one gets physically hurt. 
In one robbery, the bandit got as little as $180, but sometimes they can yield five or $6,000. Colorado's FBI Chief Schneider says in terms of prevention, some banks take more aggressive steps, like having an armed guard outside. It's a personal decision for each organization, and, and some, some banks believe that that may create additional liability for them by having an armed guard, and others don't want the confrontation to occur inside of a bank. Banks are more intent on getting the robber out, keeping their, their customers, and keeping their employees safe. Most of the robberies in Colorado are what investigators call note jobs, which means a thief passes a written note across a counter demanding money and sometimes threatening violence. And some robbers keep hitting banks. There were several people in 2021 who committed more than five robberies. One man is accused of hitting 12 in Longmont, Westminster, and Denver. Special Agent Schneider. People generally view this as a relatively easy crime. And again, I think there's a perception that it's a uh, victimless crime, but there's no better way to get the FBI involved than to commit a bank robbery. In court documents, bank employees say the experience of getting robbed at work is terrifying. Cole Finnegan is Colorado's U.S. attorney and says especially for the bank tellers, robberies take a toll. People who are traumatized, that can stay with them a long time. There is no simple answer to what happens. And someone who has had that experience where someone has come into a bank and robbed it and scared them, there is obviously going to be long-term impacts from that. The FBI catches a little more than half of the bank robbery bandits each year. They say the recent arrests of four people who were accused of dozens of robberies has likely lowered Colorado's numbers back to average. But the reasons behind this crime, or why people in this state have this much desperation, is still mostly a mystery. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. Bank robberies aren't the only crime that's up in Colorado, so are murders, sexual assaults, and car theft. Colorado also ranks among states with the highest increase in crime between 2019 and 2020. We just heard the FBI talk about the role fentanyl plays. Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin agrees with that. Fentanyl is something that uh, we are dealing with as a community. It's devastating families. We are having more than one overdose death per day. That is uh, something that our entire community should be very concerned about. So on top of this epidemic of overdose that has been hidden by the pandemic, we also see violence and crime related to some of the narcotic nexus and uh, the issues both on the violence side as well as the property crime side. David Pyrus is a sociology professor at CU Boulder who studies crime trends. We spoke last month. David, do you see drugs and drug-related crime as one of the main drivers of crime in Colorado? I don't know if it's necessarily the main driver for the rises in property and violent crime in Colorado, but there's certainly a lot of merit as a source of some of the rises in violence. And that has to do primarily with the way that the underground drug market works. To whom do drug dealers deal with their disputes? There's no court. You don't have uh, you know, prosecutors or defense attorneys. And so you have to rely on the norms of the extra legal markets that govern their behavior. So some of the rises in violence, as well as property crime, could be due to sort of the flooding of fentanyl and other drugs into Colorado. I don't know if it necessarily checks out as the main source of the rise of violence, though. 
But haven't drugs always been around? I mean, is there more crime related specifically to the illegal drugs being used now, drugs like fentanyl, methamphetamine? Well, you know, if you if you go back to the 1980s, I mean, to the time when crime was at its worst in Colorado, early 1980s is when there was, you know, the peak uh, rates of homicide in the state. I mean, it was about three times as bad per capita then than it is now. Uh, And that's attributed primarily to the crack cocaine uh, market. A lot of those markets, though, were eventually disrupted. And, uh, you know, the drug dealing moved either inside uh, or it just became less violent than it was in the past. So, I mean, I I don't necessarily know. I mean, it remains an open question if, you know, the methamphetamine, heroin, synthetic opioid markets were responsible for some of the rises in violence. But, you know, the drugs have always been there. It's just fentanyl has really taken hold, not just in Colorado, but across the country. You know, rates of fentanyl overdoses, which, you know, is a close proxy uh, for the use of fentanyl, has just skyrocketed in the last five years. So I do think that there's merit to it. I don't necessarily think uh, that it explains everything about the rises in violence. David, generally, there must be factors that have nothing to do with Colorado laws. Absolutely. And so, you know, we had a pandemic that uh, went into effect uh, March 2020. We also had considerable social unrest that was tied to the murder of George Floyd. Uh, Those are two of the leading explanations that criminologists are pointing to. And, you know, in Colorado, crime was already on a, a bad trajectory. But what happened with the rises in violence in 2020 moving into all the way through 2022 represented a market shift, you know, to be able to see 30 and 50 percent increases in the rise of homicide is some of the largest we've seen in this state on record. Nationally, though, there were 5000 more people murdered in 2020 than there were in 2019. So this is why criminologists tend to point to the pandemic and George Floyd as the sources of some of these increases. We call these things exogenous shocks. These are things that couldn't have been predicted beforehand. They represent a shock to the system. So COVID, for example, you know everything was thrown into disarray. You're working from home, or if you're forced to work in person, you're working in an infectious environment. Churches are being shut down. Social gatherings are eliminated. They're distanced. They're impersonal. And justice is delayed because courts were operating via Zoom. And so the norms changed in our society. And whenever there's a state of normlessness, it means that we can't operate off the scripts that we normally rely on. And some of these scripts are as simple as commuting to work. And what are the norms for behavior when you're driving? But they could also be norms related to dispute resolution. When you have people crowded back in their neighborhoods and working from home and there's a neighbor that's playing loud music and it just it changes the way people interact with each other. And so COVID could be a part of that. But also you got to take into account, you know, the mental health concerns, unemployment and so on. That was uh, a product of COVID, too. But then you have the social unrest related to George Floyd. And, you know, we think of that as a legitimacy crisis that it induced. And a legitimacy crisis can have three offshoots that we think of. 
One, it could be the delegitimizing of the law and its gatekeepers. Uh, so it sort of leads to a trust depletion with mm. the police. You don't want to rely on the police like you've done it in the past to call the police on, you know, that teenager who's wearing a hoodie and looks suspicious walking down the street because you don't want that kid to be the next Tamir Rice. The second component of this is depolicing, the withdrawal of the police from the public sphere. It's not the complete withdrawal, but what it means is the police are going to be less rigorous in their enforcement of the law. And by that, it is the proactive forms of policing that we absolutely know can reduce violence in communities. The last component of this is what's referred to as, uh, it's like an emboldenment hypothesis in the sense that when the criminal justice system pulls back, people feel like they are no longer bound by the authority of the law. It's almost like it's not necessarily just those who commit crime, but it's also those who commit, who are on the margins of committing crime. And it's tied, you know, as you could imagine, to things like COVID in the sense that, you know, there is a normlessness that exists in our communities. And when those that normlessness exists, it leads people to no longer obey the authority of the law because the law no longer has its influence on people's behaviors. David, thanks so much. You're welcome. David Pyrus is a sociology professor at CU Boulder who studies crime trends. We spoke in April. This week, state lawmakers passed a new fentanyl accountability bill. It lowers the threshold for felony possession charges to one gram. The bill also requires county jails to offer medication-assisted treatment for fentanyl users by July of next year. And it adds $10 million for emergency treatment services. When we come back, it'll be a good weekend to look up at the moon, and that's just the start of a summer of watching the sky. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Title IX is not just about money and whose shoes are nicer. Erica Krause is the Colorado PI who helped the nation see Title IX as about much more than sports. And her new memoir, Tell Me Everything, is a riveting look into a landmark sexual assault investigation here in Colorado. It's also our next read for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Join the conversation live on stage to kick off Lit Fest in Denver, June 10th. Details and free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. The moon will turn blood red on Sunday night. But don't worry, it's not the end of days. It's a lunar eclipse. And you don't even have to stay up late. Astronomer Doug Duncan of CU Boulder joins me now. And hi, Doug. Hi, Andrea. Remind us what happens in a lunar eclipse. Sure. An eclipse of the moon is just when the Earth gets between the sun and the moon and so we cast a shadow, and the moon is in our shadow. If you think about it, that requires the moon and the sun to be opposite each other. So on Sunday, and it requires a full moon, as the sun is setting in the west, the moon is going to be rising in the east, and it's going to go into our shadow. And we don't have to stay up late to watch it. What time is the show Sunday? No, we've been very thoughtful, we astronomers. The eclipse is going to start at about 8.30 p.m. on Sunday. And by 9.30, the moon is going to be uh, completely in the Earth's shadow and turn kind of a blood red. And uh, that total eclipse show ends about 11 
So it's very convenient. And of course, anybody can watch this from home, but at the Fisk Planetarium at CU Boulder, we're going to have a big eclipse party with people on the lawn, big binoculars you can look through, and everybody's invited. Uh, So a big event. Um, This is called a blood moon, as we said. Why? Yeah. So the short answer is the moon is red because the sky is blue. But if you'd like a little more detail, here, here's why that's true. Imagine uh, the sunlight is, is trying to fall on the full moon, but the earth gets in the way and blocks it. Instead of the moon going totally black, a little bit of light goes past the edge of the earth through our atmosphere and kind of bends or refracts and it still hits the moon. When sunlight goes through the atmosphere, sun is all different colors, but the blue light tends to scatter and bounce around and it goes every which way and makes the sky blue. And the orange and the red continue, and so those are the colors that can get to the moon, and that's why it causes the moon to be orange and red. So the blue light stays here, makes the sky blue, and the orange light makes the moon kind of blood orange. That brings to mind red and orange sunsets. Is it the same phenomenon that Uh, makes that happen? It's exactly the same thing. And, you know, imagine that you were on the moon. This would be really cool to see because uh, Sunday evening on the moon, you'd look up and you'd see the earth blocking the sun. But a little circle all the way around the earth would be orange. And that would be all the sunrises and sunsets of the whole world. And you'd see that from the moon. And that's the orange light coming to you on the moon. Pretty cool. Very cool. Now, you've talked to us about lunar eclipses before. How common are they? So there's an eclipse of the sun or the moon uh, every couple of years, Um, but you're much more likely to see an eclipse of the moon. And, And the reason is very simple. Everybody on the night side of the earth on Sunday can look up and see the eclipsed moon. So half the Earth is going to see the show. Um, For an eclipse of the sun, because the Earth is much smaller, excuse me, the moon is much smaller than the Earth, its shadow is pretty small. It's a round black dot only about 100 miles across when it hits the Earth. So for an eclipse of the sun, you got to be standing in the right spot. Now, the really good news is just over the border in New Mexico in 2023, there's going to be an eclipse of the sun. And in Texas in 2024, there's going to be an even better eclipse. So maybe we'll get to talk about those when it gets closer. Or, you know, you can Google eclipses of the sun or totality over Texas, and you'll learn about those eclipses. But Sunday, it's the moon. And is it with eclipses of the sun that we have to be careful looking at it? Absolutely. Um And, you know, I I hope we'll talk more about the upcoming eclipses in New Mexico and Texas when it gets closer. But uh, looking at the moon is totally safe. Just go outside and do it or come up to Boulder and join the party for sure. Let's look ahead to stargazing this summer. You say a planetary parade is coming. Mercury, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn will all be visible at the same time for a week in June. How can we see them? Well, this one is a little less convenient. I apologize up front. It's all in the morning sky, and you want to see it about 5 a.m. Early. Maybe even quarter of 5. And what you're going to see if you face east, the parade of the planets from left to right is going to be Venus, Jupiter, and Mars. Now, to, to help you find this a little easier, let me teach you how astronomers find stuff in the sky. We use degrees how many degrees up 
in the sky. And if you make a fist and hold it out at arm's length, that's about 10 degrees. Okay, so if you face east at 5 a.m., 10 degrees up or one fist up, that's Venus. About 15 degrees to the right of it and a little bit higher, that's Jupiter. And then still further to the right and half a fist higher is Mars. Venus is the brightest, Jupiter is in between, and Mars is the faintest. And then if you turn uh, more to the southeast and about three fists up, that's Saturn. So the bright parade of the planets that's easy to see is Venus, Jupiter, then Mars, and off further Saturn. And kind of a cool thing is if you watch all during the month, Mars and Jupiter are going to get closer and closer and closer. And on uh, May 28 and 29, they're going to pass really close in the sky. That's called a conjunction, and it's kind of beautiful to see. You can see the planets wandering toward each other, and you can feel like an ancient Greek. They named the planets, and the Greek name planetes means wanderer in the sky. So you're going to be able to see that. If you have any trouble finding Mars and Jupiter, on May 24th and May 25th, they're going to be pretty close to the moon. Probably most people can find the crescent moon in the sky. And those two things are Jupiter and Mars. So in terms of this planetary parade, I know there's another planet that's going to be a little harder to see. Is that right? You know, um, the other planet that's up is actually Neptune, and that takes a telescope. So uh, every Friday night, though, there is a free telescope viewing up at at, uh, CU Boulder, So if you really want to see the fainter planets, you're going to have to come and use a telescope. But the parade of the bright planets, uh, everybody can see as long as they're up at about 5 a.m. Okay. Jupiter is a gas giant. Mars is rocky. Does their composition make them look different? Totally. Mars will definitely look more red to your eye when you get up and see the planets. And that's just because it's a desert planet. So the same way the Mojave Desert looks kind of orange because um, what it's made of, um, same thing is true of Mars. So Mars is the red planet. Jupiter has all these clouds. Um, they're, they're of different materials than the clouds on the Earth, but by and large, they're white. And so uh, Jupiter's brighter and it's whiter. So um, there's a reason we can see all these planets lined up from time to time. Um, It's because the planets in our solar system orbit the sun on the same plane. Explain why that is. Sure. It's pretty easy to visualize. Imagine a really big tabletop, okay? And you've got all these little round things that are the planets, and they're all on the tabletop. And so think of a bunch of circles, you know, a small one for Mercury and then Venus and Earth and so on. So they're all going around pretty much in circles. If you lowered your eye to the edge of the table, the way those motions would look would be going back and forth, but all in a line because they're all on the table, just like your eyes. And all of the planets do that except for Pluto. Pluto comes in at kind of a funny angle, and it doesn't belong with the other eight. And that's the reason I was one of those people that voted Pluto off the island in 2012. Mm. Um, It's not really a planet like the other eight, but don't feel bad for Pluto because we've discovered hundreds of Pluto-like objects out there at the edge of the solar system. And Pluto has a lot of friends. 
Huh. What can we find out from those? You know, um, I think they formed in a different way. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. We don't know how the solar system formed, but maybe at a future program, we can talk about extrasolar planets, planets going around other stars, because there's more variety in planets than we used to think, and there's even more variety than we have. Other stars have uh, even more remarkable planets. Now, some things in space are harder to see. Astronomers yesterday released the first image of the black hole at the center of our Milky Way galaxy yesterday. Um, we've known it was there. What's it like for you to see this picture? It's so cool to see the picture and to try and imagine how that black hole formed. We know that when massive stars die, they make a black hole. And in our neighborhood in the galaxy, there's a bunch of black holes that are a little bit more massive than the sun. But the one at the center of the Milky Way is four million times the mass of our sun. And we don't really know how it got there. But we've got a picture of it. We know it's there. Um, there's all kinds of material swirling around it. It's very much like the drain in your tub. Um, the tub drain is black, but all the stuff swirling it around it is, is very energetic. And so in that picture, what you see, the orange stuff, is what we call an accretion disk of what's spiraling into the black hole, getting pulled into the black hole. But once it goes into the black hole, no light can escape. That's inside the event horizon. And, and now we know what it looks like. That's also very cool. Back on Earth, we're going to hear a lot about supermoons this summer. There will be three in a row. What's a supermoon and how big of a deal is it? You know, um, the, er the moon's orbit around the Earth is not a perfect circle, but it's darn close. It's a little bit oval. It's about 2 percent. Uh, out of round. And so that means the moon can be 2% uh, closer or further. And um, when it's uh, a little closer, it looks a little bigger, but it's not a really big deal. It's kind of a super hype. Thanks so much, Doug. Always a pleasure, Andrea. Astronomer Doug Duncan is the former director of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. You can catch the first of these celestial shows, the lunar eclipse, on Sunday night. The Earth's shadow will bite into the moon starting at about 8.30. The, the eclipse will be total, creating that reddish hue around 9.30. That's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to my colleagues. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.